You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Chris Novembrino from Don't Worry About the Government. If you're enjoying what you're listening to right now, you ought to sign up for the premium membership. In addition to getting access to the archive of Bruce's decade-plus catalog of work, which is voluminous, you'll get member-exclusive premium episodes, even a couple with me. It's a great way to support the show and the awesome work that Bruce is doing. So, make like the Russians and quit stalling. Sign up for the premium membership today. In looking forward to the moment which is intended to terminate the career of my public life, my feelings do not permit me to suspend the deep acknowledgement of that debt of gratitude which I owe my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me. If benefits have resulted to our country from these services, let it always be remembered to your praise and as an instructive example in our annals that under circumstances in which the passions agitated in every direction, were liable to mislead, and missed appearances sometimes dubious, vicissitudes of fortune often discouraging, in situations in which not unfrequently want of success has countenanced the spirit of criticism. The constancy of your support was the essential prop of the efforts, and a guarantee of the plan by which they were effected. That your union and brotherly affection may be perpetual. That the free constitution, which is the work of your hands, may be sacredly maintained. That its administration in every department may be stamped with wisdom and virtue. That in fine, the happiness of the people of these states, under the auspices of liberty, may be made complete by so careful a preservation and so prudent a use of this blessing as we'll acquire to them the glory of recommending it to the applause, the affection, and the adoption of every nation which is yet stranger to it. George Washington, in his farewell address, and a great event happened last month, I was sent a copy of a book called Washington's Farewell by John Avalon, who is the editor of the Daily Beast, and he wrote, and Simon & Schuster was very... Nice to uh, send a copy and a copy of so many historical books my way. This book on Washington's farewell address. Avalon gets into why Washington wrote it, who helped him with it. Hint, it's Hamilton and Madison that helped him with the draft. What desk he wrote it on. And what he said 
And he even gets into what happened from there, because Washington's farewell address, his goodbye speech to the nation, was something that was an influential document for years. And presidents such as Lincoln and Eisenhower cited it. But now it's somewhat lost. And I think it's important. This is my history can beat up your politics after all. I think it's important that we think about it again. Because who better to speak to where we should go with policies, where the nation should go, how we should act, than the nation's first president and someone who invested so much in seeing it happen. As President Obama gives his farewell address on the 10th in Chicago, he's part of a tradition that started with the first president. And of course, as with any document or speech that comes from a relatively ancient source, right, the first thing we're going to think of is, well, times were so different, then it doesn't matter. That could be true. Obviously, some of George Washington's lessons on partisanship and parties and not submitting to the passions of parties started to unravel during his first term. And his advice on avoiding entangling relationships with other countries might not have been practical as we reach the modern age. I'm reminded that I did a cast on the farewell address in 2012, and so I'll play that now. But I just uh, want to note some of the things that he says in the farewell address could be important, even if they're not immediately relevant, even if something like, watching out for the baneful spirit of party. Even if something like that might not seem practical today where we have party conventions, where states register parties, I think his farewell address presents a useful criticism at times of today's politics and a prism through which to look at what we're doing now and does it match up with how things were at least intended to go by this important figure. Here's the story. Do you ever get into a conversation with someone and you'd like to wrap it up and you sort of say, well, it was nice talking to you, even though the conversation wasn't quite over from the other person's perspective. That's a way to understand what George Washington was doing in 1796 when he issued his farewell address. Remember, nothing in the Constitution says a president has to give a farewell address. Nonetheless, Washington had a problem. Electors would vote soon. He might be considered for a third term. Despite his desire to retire, to leave the partisan atmosphere with his reputation intact, Washington couldn't just issue a statement that said, please don't consider me for a third term. That would be presumptuous and assume people were considering that. If he was nominated, though, he couldn't refuse. He'd win, probably, and have to do four more years right at the point when he was losing his immunity from political attack, which he'd earned by virtue of his great service as general and savior of the country. It was only the most partisan voices that were doing that, Tom Paine, Benjamin Franklin Bach, that actually attacked Washington in print. And a great backlash to themselves. Jefferson and Madison were keeping their comments in letters in private and also kept a healthy respect for Washington himself, though they suspected in his old age he was being used by Hamilton and others. So 
Washington decided, instead of waiting to be nominated or not nominated, instead of issuing a statement and all, he would just issue his farewell and assume it was done. It was not delivered from the porch of his house in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. It was written and printed in friendly Philadelphia newspapers relayed around the nation. In his farewell address, Washington does address the business at hand, that he is resolved to decline being considered among the number of those out there of whom a choice is to be made. It's 1796 election. Pick someone else, he's saying. He hints that he had indeed wanted to retire four years earlier, but hostility with France and England at war with each other required him to stay. Now he seeks, as he says, the shade of retirement. He expresses his gratitude for the people whose support, he said, propped up my efforts, which he said, I shall carry the remembrance of that to my grave. Here I should stop. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, George Washington does not stop there. And that's why we know the farewell address today, because it goes on for several more newspaper columns. He wishes to give advice to this nation, he says, as would a friend. And if we read that farewell address, we're going to learn a little bit of these words of wisdom. He says to avoid entanglements with foreign nations. We kind of know that in eschew parties for better statesmanship. We kind of know that. But his address is more detailed. It does offer some arguments as to why. He puts a great deal of importance, first of all, on union. It is the real source of your independence and liberty, he says. You should guard it with jealous anxiety, discountenancing wherever any may suggest even a suspicion that it can be in any event abandoned, and indignantly frowning upon the first dawning of any attempt to alienate any portion of the country from the rest. 
powerful support for the Union. He goes on to say the West needs the East, which sometimes he calls the Atlantic, for supplies and growth of population. The East or the Atlantic needs the West for a customer base and a source of supplies to trade with other nations on its ports. The North needs the South for agricultural supplies. The South needs the North for manufacturers. The name of American, he says, this parting friend, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any local discriminations. You're an American, not just a Virginian and New Yorker, an American first. Although Washington was the leader of the military component of rebellion, he argued strenuously against rebellion towards a democracy. When discussing a free government, the offspring, he says, of our choice, the very idea of the power and the might of the people presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. Then he says, let me warn you of the baneful effects of the spirit of party generally. When people form parties, he says, it turns into one faction versus another, sharpened, he says, by the spirit of revenge. Just having parties or factions that will come in and throw everybody out of office is bad. It serves, he says, to always distract the public councils and agitate the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms. That sounds a lot like our politics today, doesn't it? He notes how important it is for the Constitution to work that those entrusted with one of the constitutional branches should confine themselves to their respective constitutional spheres, avoiding an excess of one to encroach upon the other. In addition, he makes a statement of how religion and morality were important supports. Where is the security for property and life if religious obligation could desert the oaths? National morality cannot prevail in exclusion of religious principle, he says. Now, he doesn't mention a particular denomination. He doesn't even use the word Christian. But he is saying that, you know, you have to have good men who have some kind of religious obligation or morality to have a good government. Then the famous advice in foreign policy, observe good harmony towards all nations. Avoid excessive partiality towards one nation or another. But he's specific. He says, Europe has a set of primary interests to which we have none, or a very small amount. Why quit our own to stand on foreign ground, he asks. Use my neutrality proclamation from 1793 as the index of my plan. He issued that statement when there was war with England and France. He issued that a statement that America would be neutral, 1793. Now he's saying, use that as a guide for all foreign policy. Hoping his advice will be of at least partial benefit, he asks Americans to enjoy this government. And this is something I think we should always keep in mind, he says, the ever-favorite object of my heart. Well, thank you, Mr. Washington. And 214 years after these words were printed, have we seemed to ignore every word? Perhaps. Some of that took time to happen, though, because if you go back even 100 years ago after his message, we still were basically following that index, the Neutrality Proclamation and his advice on foreign policy. It was still the basis of American policy, say, in 1912. Uh, we weren't getting involved in the scraps of the Habsburg or the German kings. We did, of course, declare war on Spain and start colonies in the Spanish-American War, but we avoided siding with one European power over another. 
We didn't get involved in the Franco-Prussian War, for instance. Though General Grant, you know, kind of talked about wanting to see the French lose based on their actions during the Civil War. Events in the world obviously changed, though, not the least of which is in Washington's map, those European nations were monarchies, save France. And France's directory government was not the kind of democracy that Washington wanted to model things on. So they weren't worth fighting for. Now those nations are democracies, and during World War I and World War II, we were fighting for them. Notice how Washington comes down hard on any attempt to break the Union. The North, the East, the West, the South, they need each other. His words give no quarter to any of the secession attempts throughout our history, be it the most well-known Confederacy of 1861 to 65, or the less eventful attempts to break off a Western Confederacy or a New England secession talked about at different times, Madison presidency, Jackson's presidency. Indeed, Lincoln would cite the farewell address of Washington and his warnings about the Civil War his warnings that the regions were indispensable to the Union. Lincoln's words didn't prevent the hot tempers of 1861, but Washington's statement was a foundation of pro-Union rhetoric as they sought to hold on to public opinion. Now, on the idea of parties, here's where we must rightly earn a poor grade. But that unraveling was already going on as soon as the new government was formed and while he was writing the words that would be printed in the newspaper. One thing to keep in mind, His farewell address was released before the 1796 election, before the Electoral College voted, not as presidents do now, before they leave office. It could be read, therefore, as a kind of veiled criticism of the Jeffersonian Republican Party that we're forming that would certainly monitor the government and assess candidates and office holders. Towing the party line, a politician adjusting his or her vote to the desires of the Philadelphia Democratic-Republican Club of 1796, or even today's Democratic Caucus. A politician who says, I can do this, but the Tea Party people will be upset. A politician who says, if I do this, I'll get a lot of liberal support. The senator who meets in a corner with Harry Reid and then switches from nay to yay. The phone call late at night from Mitch McConnell, and suddenly a senator tightens resistance to a plan they supported before. All of this would meet great disapproval with George Washington. Not just that. Our entire political vocabulary, the way we talk about politics, would be at odds with his farewell address. Democrats in the House will support the president's agenda. The president's party lost seats tonight. GOP House members support their nominee for president. Democrats have a majority in the House, and Biden made a visit to help push the legislation. The Republicans are lockstep on this measure. All of this talk would be nonsense to Washington if you're reading that farewell address. He didn't have a party, felt everyone who did this was giving power given to them by the people and trading it to despots, party bosses, or worse, he feared, a foreign power who would take control of these things. So fortunately, that didn't happen. But we do have the party bosses. He was especially irked by the idea that a Congress would support a president because he was of their party, that a congressman would accept, say, you know, transportation department grants that you might see today from the White House if they vote on an issue. This was the system not functioning, people not doing their constitutional obligations. It was a government diluted by faction. Yet, all of this would almost make Washington appear to be a dotting fool, naive, right? 
Come on, parties always form. It's the way people cooperate, gain advantage. They form alliances is what happened. The alternative is 400 different viewpoints at any given time. People will be at crosshairs. Yet when this text is read, Washington is not naive at all. He knows party support. He mentions it as a natural element of human nature. But he asks us to reduce it. He says it's even useful in a monarchy. It's not useful in a democracy. The weapon he calls for is public opinion. And that's where we've probably really let Washington down, but it's not just a bunch of politicians in the federal city today or then that have done that. It's us as voters. How can politics not be controlled by today's official factions, the parties, each with huge infrastructures, the unofficial factions, the interest groups, the PACs? How can it not be when we consider a 60% vote in an election for president you know, to be something to celebrate about? And even less for midterms primaries, local and state elections. Politicians get brave when turnout goes up. They need their faction when they need to boost turnout because voters aren't voting. So I think Washington's advice is very important. Daniel Rosa writes, you should do a podcast on Washington's farewell address, particularly the point about parties. Great suggestion. I think the farewell address is something that we all should review and reread from time to time. Perhaps it should be read from the well of the House of Representatives. Maybe not every day. It's kind of long. But I think in all seriousness, of all the things we could read, here is the man who kind of started it all, at least is the key investor in the beginning of the government. I think the first president of all the people we might cite, of all the founders we might cite, the chair of the Constitutional Convention, the first commander-in-chief has a unique credibility. He did then, and he always will. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.